In loving memory, this episode of This is Van Color is dedicated to my mother, Shaheen Zafar. This is Van Color. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I have to issue a listener discretion. We are going to be discussing grief and possibly trauma, and if you are in a space where you're not ready for that, then please feel free to skip this episode and check out something else in the archive. This is going to be a very personal episode for me, but I hope it will provide perspective and compassion for something that all of us, in some capacity, we'll have to confront in our lives, and that's grief and death. That said, today I am joined by one of my favorite people in the whole world, a true game changer. She does not like to be called a guru, but I'm sure many people (laughs) see her that way. She is a yoga therapist, a full-spectrum doula for over 25 years, with a focus on birth, death, loss, and trauma. She's an activist, a celebrant, and a director of yoga and doula teacher trainings locally and internationally, hosting workshops, ceremonies, retreats, and mentorships. You can find her at Lalupa via Yoga and Wellness. She is the fierce, the powerful, Teresa Campbell. Teresa, (laughs) how are you? Oh, I'm so great, Mo. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I have too. Feels important. I've been getting nervous, to be honest. I was getting a little emotional in the car right here just Mm. thinking about it, but I'm excited to be here and you've been a a big game changer in my life. So I am honored that you want to explore this theme with me. Thank you. I've loved sharing uh, yoga over the years with you and I've always (laughs) appreciated your authentic, courageous presence. And I love what you're creating here. (laughs) Thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate that. I have you here because I think that you speak in an open and heartfelt way. I think grief is a subject that more of us need to be open with and discuss, not just tucked away in our books or Mm. in our therapy sessions, as great as those things are. I think we need space to discuss this topic, and I think we need to spread a little more light and compassion. So that is my intention here today. You are the guest, of course, but I want to share my experience first, if that's Mm. cool with you. Of course. So 10 years ago, on this podcast release date... March 11th, my mom passed away. She was 49. And she started her battle with cancer in 1996. She beat it, had some great, totally normal years where cancer, at least for me, was not even Mm -hmm. in the consciousness. And then it came back much more aggressively and widespread in 2008. And she battled it again, and even in that battle, had some really great months in 2009, and everything did feel normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, she would wear a wig, but I didn't think anything of it because she was still normal in our eyes. You know, we're doing all the same things as before. But then it came back really bad in uh, 2010. And in January 2010, she was admitted into palliative care. And we were basically told that she was dying. And I was 24, and I turned 25 a week before she passed. But in retrospect, 
I didn't fully recognize or acknowledge that this is what was happening. And I think that ended up becoming a, a big source of guilt, which we can get into later. But even in palliative care, you know, she had great days where she was laughing. I mm. mean, she, this woman's on her deathbed, but there were days where you would not have guessed that that was the scenario. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, she would have bad days mm. where it didn't feel normal. And then it felt very real that something was happening. But she always had these bounce backs. And I remember the last good day that she had was my birthday, which was March 3rd. And I had turned 25. And she was in good spirits. There was a cake. It was very sweet. But then she didn't bounce back after that day. We were waiting. You know, she'd have her down days, mm -hmm. and we were expecting her to come back to life as she had throughout this process. And then I remember the day, uh, March 11th, and we had family in town, as they had been for the preceding months. And my visiting aunt and uncle had spent the night with her. So I go to the hospital in the morning. They go back to uh, <clears throat> shower up, maybe have a nap. And I see her, and within minutes, the nurses tell me, this is it. She's passing. Mm -hmm. And I knew right away, it hit me so hard right away, that she had waited all night and part of that morning mm -hmm. for me to be there. Mm -hmm. I knew, I, and I will swear to that until the day I die, it was just this realization that she had waited. Yeah. She needed me to be there. I needed to be there for her. And uh, she held on until that moment, until we got that last moment. Yeah. And I know people will say it's a coincidence, but I, again, I know that that was meant to be. So as is Islamic tradition, we buried her body the same day. Everything was happening very fast. And there was no coffin. She was tightly wrapped in cloth. And then the men in my family carried her to the grave. And it was such a surreal moment because there's a procession of men, all of them crying, and we're carrying this body. And I was the, the first one to get into the grave to receive the body as well. And it just happened so fast. I mean, the death in the morning and then this basically in the afternoon. And I want to be very clear, I was equipped with every gift to grieve this loss. And it took me many years and with the help of many people that were in my life, that came into my life. And it was a non-linear path of grieving, <laughs> which again, we will, we will discuss. And throughout my 20s, or my early 20s, I should say, I wasn't very spiritual but my mom was always a spiritual woman, and she was a devout Muslim. But when I was growing up, she taught me about many different religions, and her whole purpose was to show me the interconnectedness mm. between all of them. Beautiful. And uh, I think after this, you know, through the people and opportunities I would have and experiences I would have, I kind of rekindled 
that side of mine. Mm. And it's thanks to a lot of people, yourself included. There's also an ex-partner who I will always be grateful for. And it's a difficult path because there's a sense of loss and guilt and yearning in a way, thinking of things that, you know, she's going to miss out on. And in my case, it's come to a point now, 10 years after the fact, where I just feel blessed and grateful to be her son. Mm-hmm. And even though she passed early, it's I'm still so lucky that she gave me everything that she could have possibly given me. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing else that she could have given me that I need for the rest of my life. And it sounds weird, but I still think that I'm lucky. And I know that people who lose loved ones may not see it that way. That may never be true for them, especially if they're losing a partner or a child. I don't know what that's like, but I think that in grieving, there is a certain path that is common to all of us. Mm. And that's why you're here. And that's what I want to talk about. Mm. A lot of people come to you for healing. That's a big theme in your yoga classes and a lot of your sessions. So let's start at the very beginning. Mm. What is grief? Uh, Just before I dive into that, I just want to really honor your mother and honor you and your courage to share some of your story and your truths with that story, um, how important and sacred it is. So thank Thank you. you. (laughs) I want to share a beautiful quote about grief um, by Martine Pritchtel. Grief expressed out loud, whether in or out of character, unchoreographed and honest, for someone we have lost, or a country or home we've lost, is in itself the greatest praise we could ever give them. Grief is praise because it is the natural way that love honors what it misses. Grief is praise. It's not sickness or any kind of affliction, but a pain-filled testament of courageous praise for whoever we have loved. Grief is praise. I love that. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's very different than everything that consensual reality is teaching us about grief, <laughs> right? We're in a very grief-illiterate, death-phobic culture. Yeah. And um, we look cross-culturally at the uh, ways that, that people have cared for others in, in their grieving times. Mm-hmm. And we don't have any of these practices um rituals or ceremony unless you're connected to a culture that is still very much in line with that and Mm -hmm. um, we we don't know how or we've lost that that skill yeah and people are suffering because of it and and yet it can really um, open blast open our hearts our lives our minds and and change the way that we are living Mm -hmm. um Stephen Jenkinson says, uh, like, what if we don't allow dying and I could add in grieving to to change the way we're living? Like what happens then? And we're seeing what's happening. We're seeing a lot of people suffering, disconnected, isolated, feeling shamed. And um, so grief is a a sacred, uh, I believe, a very sacred, sacred thing. Yeah, Yeah. I think so, too. And that and that's, again, a realization that. I came to through this process and also one of the reasons why I want to be open with it and have you here and to, and to talk about it as well, because I think it is important to talk about. I think grief is just another shade for love. Absolutely. And I think the 
thing that defines grief, of course, and in that quote as well, is is loss, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's this feeling of loss tied to this feeling of love that you have. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it can be many, many things. Hard yeah. is absolutely one of them. And I love that you mentioned that, that a big part of my work is breaking the silence mm-hmm. on these things that really matter that we're all navigating each one of us yeah. and not talking about and it's being shrouded and pushed to the corners or suppressed so deeply within us um, that we're we're just seeing you know people suffer in a multitude of ways so to break the silence and you know bring grief to the forefront and normalize and just say hey this is a natural response mm-hmm. a normal and natural response to loss it's a healthy response yeah. to loss and to um, you know, uh, unlearn a lot of the things that we've been told about grief, mm-hmm. um, and then remember—I like to call it remembering more than learning—but remembering how powerful and sacred and natural and normal that it is in regards to a lot of things. Like mm-hmm. we will naturally grieve people and animals that we love and have lost who have died, and then there's so many other things too that are very valid in in why and how we grieve them that mm-hmm. aren't, aren't connected necessarily to death. And I th- before we move forward, one thing I, I want to emphasize as well, and I, I think you'll agree with me here, <laughs> we shouldn't undermine any type of grief. Grief has many different forms. There are certain types of grief that obviously... I would have no idea what that's like to experience, whether it's losing a partner or a child. Mm. And sometimes you brought up animals. You know, some people say, oh, it's that's not a big deal. Get a new cat or get a new dog. But unless you've had a cat or dog, you don't you don't know what that's like. And it can be very hard as well. Yeah. Because that is a sentient being. And oftentimes they represent a period in your life. Mm. And they're very therapeutic as well. So I just wanted to emphasize, think with compassion Mm -hmm. and don't create a hierarchy of judgment of which grief is more worthy than another grief. Because sometimes I know that even I have instinctively felt that way, but it it is something that we have to unlearn. Which brings me to, to a question I have of something you just brought up. Why is it so shrouded? Why do people not want to talk about it? Even when they're going through it themselves, you want to tuck it away. You want to pretend like things are normal. Put on a brave face. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a juicy question. Um, I mean, (laughs) could have a whole other podcast about the effects of patriarchy (laughs) in our culture. Um, And also... Shame. Shame. And also this very like over domesticated controlling way of living. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be in control Mm -hmm. and grief demands it's feral. It's wild. It's not in control. Yeah. And that's grief in its very healthy, vibrant, alive form. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it has a lot to do with everything we've been taught, told um, in this culture that has to do with being in control and domesticated, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and that we don't revere the heart, the soul, and the feeling uh, here. You know, we tend to revere the mind and intellect and um, intellectually, you know, or 
intellectualizing emotion and, and this kind of thing. And so we were so far removed from the, the deep feeling um, soul heart journey. Um, and the, the control piece is huge, though. I see mm-hmm. a lot of folks um, trying to really grip onto that. And then, like you said, if everyone around you doesn't understand that all grief is valid, you just further suppress there and further isolate and shame with that aspect too. Yeah. Because it's, um, I guess, not a compassion-centered society overall um, that values the depth of our totality, mm-hmm. you know, like a toxic positivity and um, <laughs> this, this kind of approach, which shames people to the corners. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult because I'm a, a very positive person and I'm sure sometimes it rubs people the wrong way, but it always comes from a authentic place, right? <laughs> yeah. And I do put a positive spin on a, on a lot of things. But I think you're right. Even positivity can be toxic when you're really suppressing something down and you're not talking to the right people or being able to express yourself. I mean, I I know you have experience with, with dogs as well, but we had two dogs. They actually uh, were around when, when my mother was around. And one of the dogs, of course, had to be put down and the other one remained. But, like, the emotion coming out of that other one in terms of the crying, Mm. like, it was so sad, but also just so beautiful in a way. Because that was exactly how it felt, and that was how we felt as well. Yes, and do you feel like that allowed you all, like, it gave you all permission to maybe feel deeper or express more because the animal was? I think so, yeah. Yeah. and. there was a visceral nature to it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it did. I think you're absolutely right. One of the things we get told in our modern society is that there are five stages of grief. Mm. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I do hold those things to be true, but I think it's a (laughs) non-linear path. In a way, you're just like running circles for a while. And so it's not like you're taking each step. And sometimes you you feel like you're going backwards, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. (laughs) You deal, you work with a lot of people who are grieving through different types of loss. Yes. How accurate is this five stages of grief? Uh, it's interesting to me because, you know, again, anything that feels very uh, linear, I'm I'm really resistant to. <laughs> and I just have such a respect. I have so much respect and a reverence for the feral nature of grief mm. and how nonlinear, as you said, it is and how wild and unpredictable. And, it, you know, those things can all exist and in waves and, you know, anger here and then you know, you think you're done that stage. Mm-hmm. See, it, we, it can feed this self-judgment or this self-shame around grief if we really stick to that and be like, yeah. why am I, in quotes, going back? Or I thought I'd gone through that stage. It's like, yeah. what? where's the the circle of compassion and feralness around those stages? Where mm. can we just say, this is the wildest teacher we may know yeah. and and we need so much compassion from ourselves, from others, from our daily habits to to hold those stages in and to not think that in any way that they're linear and that it can be 
wild and intense for the first fresh bit. And then it may be 15 or 20 years later that something gets triggered in you mm-hmm. and the grief returns and it's valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do, I, I really try to approach these, you know, ideas of stages with, with a bigger space around it of like, this is wild and unpredictable. So yeah. it's not going to go like one, two, three, four, five, and then <laughs> acceptance and <laughs> like, no fucking way. Come on. Yeah. It's wild. And it's a bit of a, it's counterproductive, I think, in one way to look at things linear in a linear manner, because as soon as you have a good day, you're like, oh, acceptance, I'm here. And you've almost set yourself up for failure because you are probably going to regress into one of the regress, regress on this linear model, but you're probably going to hit one of those other stages at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so what are you feeding then? Like shaming yourself or yeah. blaming yourself or holding yourself up to some crazy and standard. Yeah. And and then that's not helping anybody to heal or be able to transmute that grieving energy into creative energy or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Yeah. It's limiting your experience and judging it. Yeah. Yeah. What is the linkage between grief and trauma? And I think we're hitting on something here as well with shame. Hmm. Is grief an outcome of trauma? How do you see those two things work together or what's the relationship between the two and where does shame fit in as well? Hmm. Again, so juicy. I feel like we could talk for 20 hours (laughs) with this topic. I work, um, my work is is, is a a full spectrum death doula. And Mm -hmm. so I will work with folks uh, at the end of life and also animals, end of life. And then I work a lot with folks um, during sudden deaths. So Mm. sudden deaths may be car accidents, uh, stillbirths, murders, uh, people who chose to end their life. And again, this reverence for how layered and complicated this can be. So there may Mm be someone, you know, you lose someone you love and depending on your relationship and the dynamics of that relationship and your idea about death and grieving will all influence your experience of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, which may be very, you know, difficult, but natural feeling. And then depending on the relationship and dynamics and all of these factors, there, there could be a level there could be of trauma and especially with sudden death scenarios mm-hmm. um, that that can be, of course, woven in together and 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 layered then in how people need to be supported. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense that it's always, you know, the person and then the one who's they've lost or died or whatever that thing is that they're grieving uh, in, in sort of this combination and totality. Like what are those very... Uh, specific aspects of that relationship and their perceptions and and all of it. Mm-hmm. And I think we should, again, similar to grief, and maybe you agree with this, maybe you disagree, but also have a non-judgmental, non-hierarchical look at what trauma is. Because we hear that word trauma, and I think we automatically assume some sort of violence. Mm. But obviously, there can be emotional trauma as well. And when I look at these two things, and I'm speaking from a place of privilege, I grew up with amazing parents, I have still a very amazing, charmed life, 
without much trauma, quote unquote. But I think that that realization of loss is a form of trauma mm. in itself. Mm-hmm. The idea that you have something present and then it's not there. Yeah. Right? It can impact us really deeply. Like a, a lot of descriptions of it is like a soul loss or a soul injury, mm-hmm. right? Like a really deep uh, a deep effect and um, every person's experience will be different for some it can be very you know deeply um, traumatic and, and mm-hmm. for others it might wake them up to a new way of living and I love that you keep coming back to that that we have to open up the space around uh, not judging and mm-hmm. staying curious to each person's experience with this but yeah absolutely it can really penetrate so deeply and um, sometimes we can get stuck you know if it's a scenario um, where the death or the loss uh, impacted the person's nervous system and their state of um, safety Mm -hmm. you know in different ways that that could be something that we would work with in sessions acknowledging and validating the grief and then I might resource out to um, trauma specialists and and, you know I have a a good foundation but I'm not um, a trauma you know therapist or specialist so I, I might resource out also to really support that person if we're seeing yeah that there's a lot of layers yeah so just as a side note, mm-hmm. when you are working with different people, different types of trauma and grief and loss, if there is something that you feel is more than your expertise or requires more than your expertise, you do... Absolutely, yeah. Con- not contract, but you do outsource that to maybe someone who is more appropriate. Yes, yes. So to know my scope and respect that and then Mm -hmm. respect where my scope ends and where you know there's other fantastic people in these different fields that can really specifically support that's everything that's one thing i can bring to the table is having kick-ass resources yeah you know um and knowing scope yeah yeah Yeah. because that's one of those things that you hear about oh doulas are not professionals or they're not (laughs) (laughs) and i i obviously i think they have a amazing place in our society but having that reassurance that, hey, if something is, you know, not is if I can't deal with something, we have professionals on hand that can yeah, certainly the, deal with something. The society deemed professionals on hand. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But I think, you absolutely. know, there is that stigma of like you're, you're putting your faith in these people that are not, quote unquote, professionals. Yeah. I mean, it's changing slowly, I think, with a lot of this work, but it's, mm-hmm. it's slow to change. And uh, I'm really grateful to be on this podcast to get the word out there, though, because uh, there's a big piece missing with our care model yeah. and we don't have a lot of soul support yeah. you know we're missing spiritual energetic emotional uh, and soul support mm-hmm. and from my perspective um, it's it's all those things that are going to really you know whether it's a dying person or the family left grieving um, that's going to make a huge difference in their whole experience of either dying or processing the grief is Mm -hmm. actually acknowledging that we're not just you know physical you know mental beings there's so much more to us and so this is a niche that we're filling to feed sovereignty and feed like autonomy that leads into my next question Mm. what is the importance of looking beyond the physical tangible world specifically when we're talking about grief? Mm -hmm. I love this question. Um, And I'd love to also come back to the physical aspect because there's a real um, 
there's a real effect on the nervous system in, in ways that our brain and our nervous system can get stuck in grief, mm-hmm. as natural as it is. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but I love this question also because we're saying, hey, like if this is a soul injury or there's something affecting you know us and it's physical symptoms, but then there's something else and we're questioning things spiritually. Um, how do we tend to that? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I love bringing in that side of things with ritual um, and just speaking to the fact that, you know, there may be something you're seeking in the healing and in the grief that needs attention. That's more uh, soul specific. Um, yeah. When I went through this process Again, I was rediscovering my spirituality and I was trying to figure out a way to rationalize it to myself in Mm -hmm. a way. And so I have a a way to describe why I think everything is spiritual, quote unquote. And I think it's a wide enough definition where it can be applicable for everyone. Mm. So we're not mechanical machines, right? We're very sentient. We are very complicated, but in terms of the tangible world that we perceive, we are limited by our eyes and our nose and our mouth and our skin. Mm -hmm. You know, we are limited by the sensory experience that we have. A honeybee sees the world in a completely different way than we do. Mm. A dolphin, which is in some ways even more emotionally intelligent than we are, sees the world completely differently because they have different senses. So when we begin to realize that what we see and perceive in the world is heavily filtered through our own senses, and that varies from person to person as well, right? Yeah. It's heavily filtered. There is so much going on that we are not seeing and not perceiving at all. But a dog will be able to perceive it. Mm. A dolphin will be able to perceive it. A honeybee, which is not that intelligent of a creature, uh, you know, compared to a dolphin or a human, they will be able to see things that we just cannot perceive. So there's so much going on in in this world. And then the fact that we have these emotional capacities, which don't make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're stressed out, how come you can't fall asleep? Or how come it actually starts affecting your physical health? And that's when I say we're not machines, I'm going back to that idea of like, we're we're not machines. We are way more complicated. There's so much going on. And I think it's not a rejection of science to say that that faith, quote unquote, of accepting that there's so much more going on than we can perceive is spirituality. Yeah. And some people can manifest that as an idea of God or the universe or whatever else. But I'm just saying that there's just more than we're seeing. Yes, there's more. There's more. <laughs> and people are, again, coming up in these scenarios and just being like, there's not enough. Like, it's not enough. Whatever the support is or the care models, like, it doesn't feel like enough to Mm -hmm. support this experience I'm having because however they define it, whether it's, you know, the liminal world, the unseen, uh, that they're recognizing that, yeah, they know that it's there. There's something more going on and, and, and there's that that missing link of like, we're not supporting people enough in in that realm. So we need physical support, but also the energetic, emotional, spiritual, and simple rituals um, 
you know, depending on what folks are open to, mm-hmm. can can support that, can support just pouring, you know, the emotion and that energy of of soul um, into a very simple little ritual that starts to just create a holding space yeah. for that very special quality because uh, it's just people are saying like it's not enough in whatever is being offered out there for grief support or loss or death that they're craving something something more mm-hmm. and so that to me is speaking to soul or spirit or whatever you call it and, and yeah there's ways to to tune into that tap into that to nurture ourselves that's a big part of my work is just not going in to change or fix or heal or save or any yeah. bullshit like that <laughs> you know fuck that it's it's coming in with deep respect mm-hmm. for all of it for the totality for rage for grief for anger for all of it a deep respect being mm-hmm. willing to stay with people staying with them in mm. that and creating uh, containers or spaces to to hold that energy so it's mm. like when I create rituals with folks it's almost like the picture of a a river and I come in with the ritual and these ideas to be nurtured in it and the ritual is like the banks of a river and the river itself is all the wild emotion and you're just creating a holding space Mm, you know I like that yeah and it changes people's experience it gives them something to pour that other energy energy of soul what you want to call it pour it into that ritual and feel a shift or feel seen or feel like they're acknowledging that threshold and Mm -hmm. And be nurtured in that. Yeah, and it's it's embracing the idea of being present mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you are viewing grief, again, from this linear start to end objective finish line, <laughs> you're going to be constantly focused on the end as opposed to the process that you have to travel through. The journey, yeah. 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 And you set up expectations, which oftentimes, you know, can be very hard to to meet. But I think always grounding yourself in that present and making space where you can for what you're feeling mm-hmm. can be yourself, so therapeutic. Yeah, because you're allowing an, an aliveness, like you're staying curious about what's alive in each moment mm-hmm. and staying curious to this ongoing relationship with the grief or an ongoing relationship. If some folks, it really works for them to think of their grief also as this connection to someone that they've loved and lost. If it's that scenario of mm-hmm. losing someone dying, that every time that it comes up an opportunity to create a ritual and actually commune with them or connect with them. Right. Um, so it can be something totally different perceptually, uh, energetically, emotionally, if you know, there's other avenues to, to view it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a huge part that people, when I run grief circles or grief ceremony for the general public, we'll talk about all the ways that we shame ourselves and each other when it comes to our grief journeys. Like, <laughs> you know, to say, to finally admit vulnerably to somebody like, oh shit, I'm, I'm grieving this, this thing or this person or the lack of safety I had as a young person to come out. Um, and that was years ago. Mm-hmm. And to be so vulnerable and then to have people be like, well, that was years ago, like get over it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or to have that own standard for ourselves. It's just so painful and shameful and it doesn't leave space for, um, all the possibilities. Cause you know, grief is a very alive, creative energy we can create from it. And yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the old societal way of just, it begins here and ends there. It's, it's not healthy for anybody. No one is going to th- thrive yeah. with that. One of the things I do love about your work is the focus on rituals. And for whatever reason, people get real weird about things like rituals, even though we have them in our modern culture. 
and it's another culture's rituals or just a different t- alternative type of rituals that people get really weird about. But rituals are really important, right? Like, and mm-hmm. they they convey stories mm-hmm. and they convey culture. What is the power of a ritual for you? Hmm. Wow. Uh, ritual, you know, for me is, again, uh, tending to the soul. Mm-hmm. And so it just feels like a place of of all possibility of sacredness and just a simple way to make a little more sense yeah. of this time here and a way to honor thresholds. It feels like a like the fascia, you know, running through our body. Like we, we need this to hold it all together in, mm-hmm. in whatever form. And for some folks, if they haven't been connected to their own cultures, um, rituals, you know, to stay curious if some place in nature feels really special to them and, mm-hmm. and create a ritual there. But to me, it's, it's everything. And it can be simple, simple forms. It could be in being present and practicing presence while breathing outside. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's everything that I need that I feel like society isn't giving us. Yeah. So it's like a necessary food for the soul. I think you explained it well in terms of, I mean, you answered the question a little earlier, but I, I like that explanation of a land bank or a container, yeah. right? So it's creating a structure where you can have that wild, natural force move yeah. through. <laughs> Wild. What about stories? Hmm. Well, something that comes up in your practice quite a bit. I recall doing an endless amount of squats, and <laughs> you, <laughs> you very sweetly saying, you know, all those stories that people told you about being unworthy, those were lies. <laughs> and you're sweating it out, and you're just trying to like push through. But it was a very nice thing to hear. What is it about stories, these truths and untruths that we tell ourselves? Oh, they, well, they really affect our whole lives, right? So whether it's societal stories, cultural stories, religious, um, they, they have a huge effect on our lives. So I think it's uh, everything to our freedom and our thriving to be curious, stay mm-hmm. curious about the stories we have, about ourselves, about each other, about grief, about death. Yeah. And a lot of these stories... Um, you know, they may be someone else's story that is bullshit and lies yeah. that's based in unworthiness or someone else's story about grief that is shaming us um, in some way for grieving a part of ourselves or that tree on our family lawn and it's been cut down. <laughs> yeah. So like it, in many traditions, uh, exploring and journeying into the stories of the mind is um, a huge practice that's that's life-changing. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I really, really am so passionate about this cultural reclamation of grief and death and, and sharing the stories, whether it's cultural stories about um, death rituals and practices or just what people's thoughts are. And so sometimes if I'm working with someone near the end of life, we might stay curious to their stories about mm-hmm. everything that's going on. Yeah, And in that find potentially uh, new ways to nurture ourselves or new ways to be compassionate or forgive ourselves or create boundaries for ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fecund to yeah. explore stories. Yeah, I think stories have such a strong relationship to the individual in terms of identity mm-hmm. and then the collective in terms of culture, mm. right? I mean, that's literally what those two things are. I mean, identity is a personalized story. And people are going to say, oh, I don't tell myself stories. If you tell yourself that 
I'm I'm a dad first and foremost. I'm a hockey player first and foremost. Whatever it is, mm. right? That's a story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that's <sighs> just your identity. That is a story that you are telling yourself. Yeah. So we all tell ourselves stories. And I think on a personal level it's identity. And then on a collective level, it's culture. Mm. And you know, people will say, Oh, well, what do you mean by that? Even the idea of like the way that the the roads work here and the you know <laughs> on on red you stop on green you go those are stories that we, there's nothing stopping you from breaking i mean please don't break those rules but there's nothing <laughs> physically stopping you it's just the story that we've all accepted that this is how we yeah. have to behave yeah right and so stories can be very positive when they are authentic and true and healthy but then they can be extremely negative when they are rooted in things like unworthiness and shame and fear and exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and and on you know again this full spectrum doula work from birth work to now a lot of death work it's really spending time to explore what the stories are mm-hmm. to discover um, how much you know yeah fear or shame is is the driver mm-hmm. in these scenarios and it can change like again on that piece of sovereignty which i'm like so fired up and passionate about supporting folks because uh, there's a lot of reinforcing fragility with maybe these stories that we bought into mm-hmm. with birth death or any kind of threshold and then to examine the stories and with folks um can be an ultimate piece uh, regarding sovereignty because they're really like hey what's at the root of the story mm-hmm. and is it a truth and is it my truth um, uh, and and move or live or die from from there from really uh, you know moving from a place of inner knowing as opposed to the fear that's been poured onto us. So mm-hmm. it's powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. One perhaps negative story that I'm thinking of right now is the idea of the strong silent type mm. man, mm. right? And somehow that's being revered, but it's literally revering either someone who has no emotion (laughs) or is really repressing their emotion for seemingly no sacrifice whatsoever, (laughs) except to be strong and silent, quote unquote. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that's one which I think does have a lot of negative impact in terms of men and how they believe that they should behave within their families, amongst each other. And that's something that in various other themes, I've I've always said that men, along with women, of course, have to be more vulnerable. And there's like there's beauty in being vulnerable and being vulnerable doesn't mean that you're crying all day or anything like that. It just means that you're open with your true, authentic emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Open to life, open to feeling life. And so I'm reminded of what you just said about story. What was the story that those men have been taught about what is strength that we've all been taught? And why is there high rates of, you know, self-harm or suicide with some men, young men and older Mm -hmm. men, right? When it comes to man up and and all this bullshit, it's bullshit. And for all folks, because I, you know, love going beyond the binary of men and women for all folks, however they identify, uh, exploring like what have you been taught around yeah vulnerability and what is strength because holy fuck it's crazy mm-hmm. that even there can be ancestral grief passed down from this 
heroic suppression yeah. and oh you're so strong like actual ancestral grief passed down so it's it's not only you know harming potentially that person who has been taught to suppress and that that's the the way but potentially a lot of others it's fucking harmful and toxic mm-hmm. right and it's it's out there it's out there when oh you get you know what two or three days maybe with your workplace for for taking time off to grieve and mm-hmm. um, it's literally the structure is is not acknowledging how how deep it is and the idea of strength being suppression mm-hmm. is so far removed from our nature like yeah. we are born knowing how to grieve babies cry Mm -hmm. when they are born because there is a grief from being separated from the birther you know like there's a primal cry that's very distinct unlike anything i've ever heard yeah Um, and we are born knowing that and then somewhere along the way for different reasons if you're not in a culture that supports this deep feeling this deep undomesticated feral unfolding and vulnerability and expression Mm -hmm. um that it's crazy it's being celebrated to suppress oh they're so strong they're not crying and all this bullshit and it's you know you find yourself going oh yeah and then you're like wait that's fucked up we can get very sick actually if we're not feeling grief needs action it needs action from deep crying that kind of guttural crying where the body's shaking there's actually a recalibration Mm -hmm. happening um we need movement and it's just yeah it breaks my heart courage Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I see courage as an emotion where you're mustering up something that's emotional. That's an emo- that's not a rational feeling. That's an emotional feeling. Love, again, emotional. <laughs> so there's so much good. Yeah. You know, we we think about emotions and, and stuff like that in terms of crying or anger or things that maybe are, quote unquote, unpleasant. But there's so much good. And you ca- I don't think you can have all the good without some of that unpleasant stuff. It's not 50-50 or whatever, but there is a balance. There's, yeah, some kind of weird balance out there. And that's where the toxic positivity or the Mm -hmm. spiritual bypassing is so dangerous because it's not acknowledging how powerful and how... um, how much strength and how much creativity and and how, you know, people have had the insights of their life sometimes through the dark nights of the soul. Mm -hmm. It's not acknowledging how powerful the totality of us is. And um, we, (laughs) yeah, I I, I just love feeding feeding the opposite of that, which is like Mm -hmm. your vulnerability, your darkness, like bring it all. I'm not scared of any of it. I respect (laughs) it all. I think it's all powerful and potentially so beautiful and life-changing and fertile fecund again just Mm -hmm. comes to mind one of my favorite f words um (laughs) that it's a fecund fecund place to be you know we're again we're just we're not taught that i've been in lots of spiritual circles where there's just been so much spiritual bypassing and that Mm -hmm. that those things are bad and this is good and it's so binary and it's so bullshit yeah Yeah. (laughs) on the topic of a story can i share a story with you yes So it was the summer after my mom passed, and I woke up in my bed, and it was a bright, sunny day. Now, the blinds were drawn, so it was just all white coming from that Mm -hmm. window, right Mm -hmm. through the blinds. And it was so bright, and my eyes were wide open, and I was just depressed. Like, I did not want to get out of bed. I did not want to do anything, but also didn't know what I should do, right? So I'm literally lying there, and I start to hear these birds chirp. Mm. 
And so I kind of look over to the window and it's still bright and I'm hearing these birds chirp and it begins to take on a certain melody, right? There's several birds. I don't know what type they were. I wish I I wish I knew something about birds so I knew what <laughs> kind of birds they were, but they were just chirping and it, it turned into this melody. And I hear my mother's voice and she says, the birds were up all night composing that symphony for you. <sighs> my eyes were open. This was not a dream. This was as real as it gets. And it was shocking. Like I was frozen. And I know that some people might be listening to this and be like, oh, Mo's crazy. Nope. Again, I will absolutely go to the grave with that being true. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's ways to explain it or whatever, but I know that in that moment that happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't some grandiose advice it was you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. it wasn't oh you'll get through this oh don't worry i miss you it was nothing like that it was mm. just something so simple mm. and that's a great story that i love it's telling so, people so beautiful how did that feel for you to it was shocking like mm. i was frozen at first and i'm like i'm not sleeping i'm awake mm. and so once you discern that but i think as I, you know, I did want to get out of bed I, I, very shortly, and, and it did feel good, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't immediately put a smile on my face. It was very jarring at first, but it did feel really good. And it's a great, when I do grieve, I obviously do think of good memories, but I also do think about that as well. Yeah, that's so special. And thank you so much for sharing that. I love that uh, that felt important for you to share and that you're holding <laughs> that as, um, as something that nurtures you. Mm -hmm. uh, in all of my work that, again, can be so different than maybe the medical approach to death and to end of life um, or even, you know, sudden deaths and how people are integrating all of this mm -hmm. is a big part of what I bring is uh, a big acknowledgement of the mysteries mm -hmm. and a big space for miracles and mm -hmm. space for the ancestors to come in or space and respect of this communication possibilities mm -hmm. out there, right? So when it's like a ritual, there's you're opening up that space and that conversation or your heart just for that to be possible and, and to be something that could really deeply, yeah, nurture you mm -hmm. from this moment on or from that moment on. Yeah. So I love that. And I, I, I love that, you know, I can bring that to the space to just talk, again, break the silence and talk about these possibilities. Mm -hmm. And for some folks, they might feel like it's this end in totality when they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I've noticed, you know, uh, hummingbirds around me and they've never been around mm -hmm. me before. Or, and it just people start to see and feel and, and remember in different ways or open up the space for what's possible and that, oh, for some people it feels really nurturing and exciting to be like, oh, I can still f participate in this relationship. It can still grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And just understanding that that relationship with whoever you lost isn't quote unquote over. I mean, they might not be there, but... That relationship exists because it happened. Mm -hmm. And there's still great things that you're allowed to draw from. Yeah. One of the things with your work is obviously a focus on movement and motion. Mm. 
What is the importance of movement, motion, effectively exercise in the grieving process? I know there's obviously the scientific end, which Mm -hmm. says, you know, you release endorphins and you do feel good after a workout. Why do you see movement as important? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I really believe grief needs action. And for some people, yeah, it might just be allowing themselves to finally like fall to their knees and have that deep guttural wailing and the whole body shakes into a new state, you know, Um, and then the, the other pieces are like really understanding that, wow, grief can affect, you know, our our nervous system and Mm -hmm. even our brain and we can get kind of frozen and stuck in some of these states. Mm -hmm. And so just some simple things, if if folks are receptive, um, there's very specific kundalini kriyas. Uh, Kundalini is very cool, kundalini yoga, because it's very specific. So there's very you know, uh, clear kriyas, um, which are like recipes mm-hmm. for grief. And so you, you know, you do this, you do this, you do this, you breathe this way, you move your spine and open your chest and your lungs mm-hmm. and get the breath in there again, instead of this closing, protecting, shutting down. And sometimes there's specific mantras that you're chanting to activate certain centers of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and if folks, you know, aren't open to that, it might just be like, hey, what are you, what do you love to do, you know, in your body? Do you love to dance? Um, mm-hmm. Some of the grief circles I've led are, are dance-oriented. Mm-hmm. And we start with, you know, warming up, and then the music builds. And then when we get to the string instruments, that's always helping people emote. Oh, yeah? Um, okay. Yeah, there's a very specific way that we guide them. Huh. And then people can fully emote through dance. Yeah. It might be swimming for other people. I know for myself, at times with grief, certain kinds of grief, it's been wild dancing. And for other times, it's been long-distance swimming. Hmm. Um screaming underwater, uh, (laughs) you know, like getting in touch with the water if folks don't have community to support them is the next best thing. Mm -hmm. But um, movement, yeah, again, brain, nervous system, lungs in some form, depending on what people are receptive to and their abilities, there's always ways to to find that. And again, it could just be that finally after generations of men being told to suck it up, there's you know, a guy in that family line who finally like just falls to his knees wailing like a little child and mm-hmm. and that's movement and action. But grief needs action. It needs we need nature, we need each other mm-hmm. and, and it needs some form of action. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. And there's that old adage, you know, motion creates emotion. And I do think that when you are physically exerting yourself your inhibitions towards expressing emotion suddenly start to lower, Mm -hmm. right? And you do get emotional. I remember that summer, the summer after my mom passed, I was doing the grouse grind, and there were moments I would get to the top and literally just be in tears. Because, I mean, it's a tough workout. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but yeah, you know, having exerted myself, a lot of stuff just, just came up. And... And I and but then I felt better afterwards. You know, once it was out, I, there was that like relief and and probably the endorphins high. Like I felt really good. And I think movement is very important. And you talked about the the kriyas that you do in Kundalini, and and obviously there was a Kundalini class where I where I met you and uh, was under your <laughs> your teachings and your guidance for <laughs> a couple of years. The cool thing about Kundalini is you're moving in, like you said, a very feral, visceral way. 
you know, we, we're we're taught that we can only move in certain ways. Yeah, another story. Yeah. yeah, but Kundalini, you're moving in ways, and they feel good. Yeah, it's a rhythmic science, and mm-hmm. everything that is more natural and feral around us, whether it's the seasons and the wind and the ocean, has a rhythmic nature. Mm-hmm. Birth has a rhythmic nature. Death has a rhythmic nature. So, like, the rhythmic science of all that fluid flowing movement, it's getting into these little corners of where we've suppressed, you know, like physically, and then, of course, it's linked to emotion. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it does naturally help folks uh, start to release. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I was crying most of the class. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and just say, it's okay. You don't have to know why. Like, how does that feel for you? Um, But in this honoring of, you know, inclusive practices that, uh, again, for different uh, able bodies, you know, there's different things that we can offer for the movement part of of healing into grief. And sometimes we're just in shock when we're grieving and we're not moving and we're immobilized and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just meet people wherever they're at and walk with them or rest with them (laughs) wherever they are and just start really tenderly and compassionately, like not like you have to do this. This is the one way to get through your grief or, you know, recover and there's not one way ever to anything I don't think yeah yeah I'm just reminded of a moment (laughs) in your kundalini class (laughs) and you know we've talked about how exercise can bring up certain emotions there was actually a moment in your class where I I can't remember what we were doing I think we were in some sort of seated movement and I could not stop laughing. I don't know. Like, it was not like you said anything funny or oh, even darn. the move. Well, you do say some funny <laughs> stuff. But I, but I was, in this moment, it was nothing you said. It was nothing about how I felt in terms of the movement being weird to me. Sometimes the movements that you prescribe do feel weird. Yeah. But it wasn't even that. It was just something something happened. I was triggered and I could not stop laughing. Yeah. And I felt so bad because I, <laughs> because I, you know, I didn't want you to think that I was laughing at you or that I was laughing at someone else, it, it, but it was weird. It just brought up this weird emotion. Yeah. I've, and I love that you said that. And it's happened to me when I've mm-hmm. been in a Kundalini workshop as a student, hundreds of other people all, you know, focused and quiet. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, blah, and like snorting and slobbering and can't stop giggling. Yeah. And again, it's that whole like liminal space of like, we think we have it all figured out. And how are you doing today? I'm good. And then we're just like, holy shit, how much daily are we suppressing, pushing down? <laughs> and when you move some of that shit and the layers, which Kundalini is brilliant at, you're just moving, you know, the neurosis, the layers, the holding, mm-hmm. all the stuff that's not really you, you get to a more joyful true self and so that actually happens quite a bit Mm -hmm. you know and it's great absolutely yeah so great you also just made me realize that the how are you i'm good how are you it's (laughs) that's such a formality like we're not actually asking that question we've just been told (laughs) that when you see someone you have to say how are you because holy shit if someone said oh i'm deep in grief (laughs) how fucking confronting would that be (laughs) right like we're just we're not very honest yeah (laughs) and authentic and it's uh you know i guess it works for some moments but it's uh i think uh I think it hurts our soul a little to not be in this honesty, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, especially with the the ones you love, the ones in your circle. Yeah, yeah, and if you know the ones that we love and in our circle uh, haven't been curious about their relationship to grief or been curious to question definitions of strength and vulnerability, uh, we may not 
trust that they can hold a space mm-hmm. for us, that it might be too confronting for them because it'll bring up their grief if we start to get honest. So a lot of folks will say that to me, that either they did become vulnerable with friends or family and were just met with a shutdown or, well, you should be over that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then you feel guilty. And then you feel guilty. And then you're carrying guilt and shame and yeah. <laughs> judging yourself. Like, Yeah. How do we overcome guilt and shame? Because I do find, and we've touched on this a little bit already, but sometimes these feelings of guilt and shame do come along with grief, right? Yeah, yeah. Ah, well, I just, I'm reminded of, uh, Francis Weller has a beautiful book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, uh, all about grief. And he names five gates of grief. And one of the gates of grief is the places within us that we have shamed so far away that they're not even in the circle of worthiness to be grieved. Hmm. So when I run workshops or do one-on-ones with folks, sometimes we'll explore these gates and explore, you know, yes, the first gate, who are the ones that we've loved and lost. Mm -hmm. And then the second gate is really deep for a lot of people, myself included, to go, holy shit, what are the places I've shamed away so far that I can't even grieve them because I don't feel like they're worthy. Yeah. And then to bring those to the forefront with compassion, with worthiness, and to finally allow ourselves to grieve so that we're not defined by that shame. Like it is to me a malleable, shape shifting thing that we can, you know, go to the garden and, and create with. Mm-hmm. And it depends on again our stories around it. Yeah. But a lot of folks in this culture anyway are like just on their grief journey and then it's getting heavier because of the shame they're holding um, about it. Because for example, you know, you said to me um, before this interview, some questions to sit with. And one of those is what are people grieving when they come to me? Yeah. And so sometimes uh, they're grieving, you know, a change of physical or mental health or grieving uh, sorrows of the world. And there's so many right now. And Mm -hmm. many folks would be like, what? Like, that you didn't know that person personally, or you haven't even been to that country, or, right. you know, that was, you know, 20 years ago when you were struggling in the closet and now you're out. And and so it's like probably our own personal shaming from conditioning and then mm-hmm. other layers of shame. And it doesn't allow, you know, the grief to naturally flow and inform us and, and then feed our aliveness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I do like that expansive inclusive definition of grief without judging what's worthy and what's not worthy because it is about whatever it is you're feeling. Yeah. How are right? you impacted by the sorrows of the world? Uh, and there's so, so many, whether it's the fires in Australia, whether it's the way trans folks are being murdered, um, how are you affected by the sorrows of the world? And that grief is valid. And so mm-hmm. You know, I'd love supporting people in recovering their right to be supported and mm-hmm. learning to lean in and learning to validate themselves. So even if after a session they're like, well, I'm pretty sure no one in my friend and family circles can understand this, but I can validate it within myself. This mm-hmm. is valid. This is real. This is worthy of my attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge piece because people will come and they're grieving um, so many so many things that aren't acknowledged as grief worthy in our culture yeah. Yeah. right one of the other gates of grief is um, this has to do a lot with the sense of belonging and where we grieve things we we knew we should have had 
and we didn't have. So for example, if it was kids growing up in a um, an environment that wasn't safe, and then later on in life, they're grieving as an adult that, oh, my family, you know, home space was not safe. And, and mm-hmm. I'm grieving that I I needed and deserved that safety or this deep yearning for community that we all have that I believe we're like soulfully and psychologically, physiologically wired to be with community and be supported mm-hmm. and be seen in all our transitions that people will grieve not having that. Yeah. And there's just so much that's never, never acknowledged about what people grieve. And it's so vast. It Sometimes we're grieving, you know, animals and humans that are still alive and they haven't died, but the relationship has changed. Sure. And it's valid. Sure. And valid grief. Right? Yeah. So we got to blow that open. That yeah. It, yeah. And, and again, I, I, a recognition of loss, different shade of love. Yeah. You know, these things are grief. Uh, and when you think about grief in those terms and the terms that you just outlined, it, it encompasses quite a bit, and it should, mm-hmm. you know, because there is a commonality between all these things. It should, yeah. We become vulnerable in our hearts and souls and become invested in in a relationship or in um, safety or whatever it is, and it matters. It all affects us, yeah. right? It's to really start respecting the, the depth and totality that we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to share a story about guilt. Mm. And this one is actually quite sweet. I think my mother had the foresight that something may cause guilt or shame. And so when she was in palliative care, uh, I would go, you know, I'd obviously be visiting her every day. And sometimes we'd chat and it'd be very heavy. And sometimes we'd just chat and be very light. Sometimes we wouldn't chat that much, but we'd still enjoy each other's company. And... One day, and she must have thought about how she was going to broach the subject, but one day she was like, after I die, your father can date and marry whoever Mm -hmm. he wants, and he can start the very next day. And I was quite shocked by that. I said, you know, I wasn't even thinking about that. Maybe he was, and that's fair. And she's like, no, he can do that, and you have to support him. And uh, she's like, as soon as I'm gone, you have to support him in that. Mm. And I think the foresight for someone to say that is so incredible because they're foreseeing that this new phase will bring up feelings of guilt, right? Mm -hmm. From my dad, from me. And being able to tie up that loose end and recognizing, like, okay, I'm going to give everyone permission to not feel guilty was was very powerful. So powerful. Mm-hmm. So powerful. What an incredible, incredible woman um, that she just on her own was <laughs> intuiting these things and, and knowing there would be a different stage of life. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the pieces uh, that I'll bring into um, end of life work is if that person is receptive, not only what their care looks like physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, energetically, like in the dying process at the end of life. Um, but sometimes we talk about legacy and, and aspects of relationship after too, mm-hmm. if people are open to that. So I think that's just really incredible that she was already intuiting that. And, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, guilt is, uh, again, it could be another podcast special on its own. Sure. <laughs> it's wildly amazing. I feel like I want to break the silence here, if I can, with something regarding guilt and, and death um, and grief uh, that I work a lot with folks um, and I kind of weave in my my grief and bereavement background with celebrancy work. And uh, one thing I offer that I find really special is redoing funerals. Interesting. And, yeah. And a lot of the times folks are coming with different stories, of course, and some of the guilt uh, that maybe, say, for example, when I work a lot with uh, folks with sexual trauma and survivors, that maybe a family member who abused them hmm. died. And so they're surrounded by family members who don't know about this, and they're all grieving and, and just celebrating the life hmm. of that person. And the survivor is feeling a lot of other things. Of course. And so they have to go you know, to this funeral and hear all the exaltations about this person when that's not the totality of what they experienced of that person. Mm -hmm. um, so in, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is making sense, but the redoing funerals is fucking so powerful as far as reclaiming. And sometimes it's around uh, having, you know, it's not always only love in these relationships of loss. Of course, yeah. It can be very complicated. And uh, But it's also recognizing that guilt in particular can spring from a situation where you absolutely did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. And actually it was someone else that, that hurt you and, and it was not your fault. Yeah. But it can spring up from these different places. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing with grief that we really push down to the surface. We do. And I think it's important that you're speaking to that because it's, it's not just ever only grief, right? There's... Mm -hmm. Guilt we may dance with and shame and anger and mm -hmm. rage, you know, and lots of different emotions. So uh, with my work, it's, a, again, just a, a space for all of it being okay yeah. and being valid and we can work with all of it. So sometimes a grief session with someone will be a lot of embodied uh, movement or meditation practices that are helping them uh hold and and be with the anger or rage or guilt that's that they're feeling and, mm -hmm. and giving it a space to flow you know and then resting deeply after but sure. yeah <laughs> that's important too <laughs> yeah it's not just singular it's coming with a lot of other things we have to wrap it up so i want to ask you from all your experience in working with different people from your own personal experience what are the lessons for grief that you want to share or misconceptions that you want to tear down? How? What's the big lesson here? Hmm. I think we touched on a lot of them, but to recap, I mean, grief is a normal and natural response uh, to loss. Mm -hmm. And it's a consequence of living and loving deeply. And um, grief is wild. It's nonlinear. It's feral. You know, uh, it's something that will go in ebb and flows and little waves and humongous waves. Mm -hmm. And to just constantly stay curious to what what can nurture us during the little ebbs and flows and then the ones that feel like they're going to take us down. Um, it's ever evolving. And again, the wildest teacher we may know. So mm -hmm. to keep validating your grief experience to explore, um, you know, whether it's through that book, The Wild Age of Sorrow, or with me, these different gates of grief that um, there's probably so much that you're grieving that you've never acknowledged is so valid. Mm -hmm. And so to keep creating compassionate space for validating that. Um, 
that there's paths to being supported, whether it's following your intuition, getting outside in nature more, getting to specific bereaving, bereavement groups, or coming to some of my grieving circles or one-on-one work. Um, that there's ways to be with it and to create from it. That grief is a very powerful, moving, alive energy, and we can, you know, we can create from it. Whether we're not meant to grieve and be mm-hmm. isolated, we need each other. Uh, so to find ways to lean in and find community and find nature and find beauty. We need beauty when we're grieving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's lots of ways to compost and, and create with this energy that can be feeding a new way that, that we're living. And it's fucking hard sometimes. <laughs> and that's and that's a reality too. And yeah. it's beautiful sometimes. And it's everything in between. And it's all okay. And it's all normal and natural. Mm-hmm. And so to find within yourself and with others around you, spaces to be validated, seen, witnessed. We need to be witnessed in it and acknowledged. That's why funerals and rituals are really important. Mm-hmm. To find ways to be seen and held and respected in it. People who will stay with you in it and not try to change and fix. You know, it's 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 wild and it's something that needs um, physical, emotional, soul tending. Sure. Natural. Yeah. 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 I'm going to share one last story, Mm. and I think this wraps up a lot of what we've been talking about today. So one morning, I had gone to the hospital and to see my mom, and again, every day was a little different. Some days, you know, super talkative. Some days, she just wanted to chill out, totally fine. And I made it a habit of when she was maybe a little more low energy of just reading to her. And I don't know even why I thought of it. I just thought that it was a good way to pass the time. We're still sort of communicating. And so I'm reading her. I'm reading to her this one morning. And um, first of all, she she cracks a joke and she, and she starts laughing. And, and I go, what's so funny? And she goes, oh, it's just I used to read to you when you were sick. And now you're reading to me mm. when I'm sick. And I, again, I didn't even think of it that way, but I did think it was an interesting uh, observation of a role reversal. And so I I started reading some more, and she closed her eyes and seemed very restful, so I stopped. Like, I just assumed she was asleep. And without opening her eyes, she's like, ah, why'd you stop? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were asleep. And she said... Oh no, I was I was just imagining. And so I asked her, I said, you were imagining when I was reading you? And and she said, No, 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 no. I was imagining you speaking to thousands upon thousands of people. Mm. And everyone was listening to your voice, and you have such a nice voice. And that stuck with me. It was not a conscious prophecy that I was trying to fulfill in creating this podcast, which is still, you know, a very modest podcast. But that was a interesting prophecy hmm. that she had. <laughs> and it goes beyond just this podcast. It goes beyond a belief that I truly believe in, which is recognizing that your voice matters. Hmm whether it's within your circle of friends, your family, your community, you have that power to reach out to someone 
and to communicate. And we have that power to really communicate and help each other. And sometimes it could be a small word of kindness that can really make someone's day. We've all been on the receiving end of that. Yeah. And sometimes it can be, you know, really heavy talk, but you walk out of it feeling much better than when you walked into it. And my mantra, these, these were not words that my mother had used, but she had taught me lessons that I'm now shortening into this mantra, is love out loud. Mm. And if there are people around you that you love, let them know. Yes. And it's not just showering them with praise. It's being there, being in their presence, communicating with them. When you're asking, how are you? Actually asking, how are you? Having that chat, yeah. you know, being intuitive to how people are feeling around you, being intuitive to how you feel and sharing yourself with people. So that's, for me, the lesson that I want to share. I am no expert on grief, but one thing that I learned that I thought was very valuable lessons that my mother was teaching me and then came to this realization of love out loud. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm no expert either. I just respect grief and respect loving out loud in whatever way we're called to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Teresa, how do people learn about you? How do they find your offerings? Where do they go? Uh, folks can find me on good old Instagram uh, at La Lupa Via, L-A-L-U-P-A-V-I-A. -A. It means the wolf way. Uh, Facebook, La Lupa Via. And then my website is www.lalupavia.com. Folks can message me uh, with any questions, any inquiries. And, you know, I did a lot of this work for many years thinking it was too sacred to speak out loud and <laughs> kept it in the closet, amongst other things. And then uh, there's a time now more than ever of like, I need to share these stories and talk about it. So people can just feel free to, um, yeah, message me with any curiosities and I'll be sharing more stories also to really uh, reveal the truth about these offerings too. Love it. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to your partner, James Kelly of Peak House. He was featured in episode 25 of This Is Van Color. <laughs> it was still a little rough back then, but I think the episode holds up <laughs> on some very important themes of his work. So mm. I hope people do check that out as well. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, Peak House, which I have been blessed to do some contract work with the teens there who are just everything that resiliency is and inspire me every day. Cool. Yeah. Teresa, thank you for joining me to mm. commemorate my mom in this very personal, <laughs> very special episode. And I really did enjoy being able to unpack this very human reality that we all have to face at some point in our lives. So, so thank you for so much for being mm. here. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for truth speaking with me. I have big love for you. <laughs> I see you and I thank you. People, she is a yoga therapist, a full spectrum doula, a true game changer. Find her at La Lupa Via. She is Teresa Campbell. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.